listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. So Luke chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 20. Uh, we've already had verses 15 through 20 read, but uh, we'll just uh, we'll march through these verses right now together. Uh, Luke chapter 2, uh, verse 8 and following. So the setup is uh, that Jesus, or Joseph, sorry, has been visited by an angel. He's taken Mary uh, to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is where he's from. And, uh, and there, there's a tax. And all of this just happens to be uh, in man's plans, just happens to fit with uh, this need to get Mary and Joseph and their baby to Bethlehem so that all the prophecies could be fulfilled. And so we pick up the story in verse 8. And in this same region, we're in Bethlehem right now, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. This is how you will know that this is true. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a host, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and they found, they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. We live in a world that thrives on bad news. Fentanyl overdoses, child pornography, this refugee crisis, global warming, political corruption, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton. News sells and bad news sells better than good news. <laughs> and it's almost like humanity thrives on bad news and yet it's only true as long as the bad news is not about, is, as long as the bad news is about someone else. And what does all this bad news tell us? That we live in a broken world? That people are broken? Science would tell us that we're genetically hardwired to look a certain way. What you see is the result of how I'm wired, what my DNA says. In the same way, People seem to be hard, hardwired to think that the same things are wrong. Like all of humanity thinks this way. They all think that murder is wrong. We seem to be hardwired to think that way. That people ought to behave a certain way towards others. That they ought to behave better than they do. So how is it? How is it that we know the world should be different that it should be better, and yet 
we're powerless to do anything about it. I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I think that you would agree with me that good news actually ought to sell better than bad news. That it ought to be more popular than it is. That it ought to get better coverage than it does. That it ought to outsell bad news, but it doesn't. The system is broken from within and clearly we can't fix it. Psychologists, sociologists, philosophers have been trying for decades, for centuries, to fix it without success. Someone from the outside needs to fix it. And the systemic failure of this human condition affects everyone. I, I know that's redundant. It's, if it's systemic, then it obviously affects everyone. But every human being on the planet thinks that they, 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 they think better than they actually live. They speak better than they actually act. We're all, all of us, everyone here, everyone outside of here, everyone in this city, everyone in this country, everyone on this entire planet is in the same boat. So this morning, as we continue to look at the Christmas story, and in particular, as we zero in on some characters, some new characters in this story, the shepherds, we're going to see that the gospel is good news for all people because it helps where they need it. It heals broken lives. But before a bone can be healed, it must be reset. Before cancer can be cured, it must be cut out. We will discover that pain comes before healing. And the gospel message must also wound before it mends. So the first thing that we're going to see in this text this morning is that the gospel is good news for all people. <clears throat> but before we get started there, I want to draw your attention back to the first four verses in this book of Luke. So if you just turn back one page with me, you can see where I'm reading. I'm reading from Luke chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. Luke writes these words, Inasmuch... There's a nice long word that no one knows what it means. As many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, as they have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you or for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So did you, did you notice, did you hear the reason that Luke is writing this account, the reason that he gives? He's collecting and he's compiling an eyewitness account of the events of Jesus' life in order to give them to a friend or an acquaintance of his. So from Luke's perspective... Right, according to what he's trying to do, these shepherds are key players in Jesus' story. And it's likely <clears throat> that, that Jesus actually spoke to these shepherds. Remember, Jesus lived about, he lived 33 years. Some of these shepherds may have been boys at, you know, at the time. It could very well be that Luke is talking to these young men, uh, or these older men now, in their 40s and 50s. But I find these characters actually highly unusual. It's odd that they are the participants in this story. Let me explain. When we plan an event, I'm no event coordinator. Let me assure you, I am no event coordinator. But I do know a little bit about event coordinating. When we plan something, we invite significant and important people, people who have an interest in the event that we are planning. If we're planning a charitable event, we're going to invite people who have money, right? People who we think are generous or who we can convince to part with their money. Or we invite people who are interested in the issue. If we're planning a, a conference or 
um, speaking on a particular topic. We're going to get the experts, right, to, to teach, to tell the people who are actually interested in the topic, right? Those are the people who are going to come. If you have a Christmas meal in the next couple of weeks, you're, who are you going to invite? You're going to invite the people that you're involved with, the people that you care about, the people that you live life with, or the people that you want to get to know, right? The people who are on the invitation list are, are people uh, for whom the event is relevant. And the point is, the guest list always reflects the event, and on the surface, this invite list for this historic event, it, it looks all wrong. If you and I were planning this event, we might ask a few questions like, who should be at this event? Who might be interested in this event? Who is our target audience? And if we were to answer these questions, who are the people that would come to mind? Remember, this child is a king. He's the promised Messiah who would be the savior of Israel. Who should be on this list of invites? Well, I'll tell you, I would not have the shepherds at the top of my invite list. So why are they there? Why does God choose them and not choose the wise and the powerful and the influential and the religious? Why? What's, he, what's going on? Well, the first thing that we can say is that modern man, and you got, just bear with me a bit, this, I think this will tie together, but modern man in his wisdom has determined that the virgin birth and the incarnation can't be proven or tested with modern instruments and verified and therefore they can't have occurred, right? And, and that's us, we're, we're modern man. We're the ones who really worship science, who believe that, you know, if we're going to say anything definitive, we've got to be able to measure it and quantify it. But for God, the virgin birth and the incarnation aren't problems that need to be solved. God doesn't need us to understand or prove these things to be true in order to prove that they really happened. He doesn't, he doesn't need us. It doesn't matter to him whether we think these events are true or not. Now, don't mishear me. I am not saying that these events didn't happen. I am very clearly convinced that these events happened. In our, in our modern day courts, one of the strongest evidence, pieces of evidence that we can bring to any court case is, is first-hand eyewitness accounts, which is exactly what we have here in the Gospel of Luke. These events truly happened. But the virgin birth and the incarnation aren't a problem for God. They don't need to be proved. They are God's solution to man's problem, sin. That's what the virgin birth is about. That's what the incarnation is about. Man is bent. He's, he's warped. He's twisted. God has, back in the garden, God created man to serve. He created man to steward his creation, to look after, to care for his creation. God created Adam to care for and lead Eve. They created them as a family to care for and lead a family. Man was meant to steward, to serve the creation. And instead, man has spent his whole life looking inward, using people and using God's creation for his own selfish needs. Man is bent. So why none of the elites because God doesn't need respectable people to give testimony to these events. He doesn't need that. But, but why, why choose shepherds? We still haven't got, answered that question. Why shepherds? Well, perhaps the only thing that we can say is they were awake, right? They were, they were watching. Now, it's true that they weren't watching for Jesus. They were watching something else entirely. They, they were watching sheep, but at least they were awake. But we, we can learn some things from these shepherds. First, we see that God chooses weak people. 
If the shepherds aren't considered to be the least of the people in Israel, then I don't know who is. And this is how God works in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is talking to the Corinthians, the, the Corinthian church, and he says this to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and following. For consider your calling, you Corinthians, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is Weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So that, and hear this, this is the reason why God has done this. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The gospel doesn't come to strong, self-sufficient people. It comes to the weak. It comes to the broken, the suffering, the rejected, the poor, the needy, and the oppressed. That's who the gospel is for. The second thing that we see from these shepherds is that the good news is for everyone. For all people. God sent his son to save all kinds of people. Not just the religious people. In fact, Jesus repeatedly warns people that religion will kill them. Religion is more dangerous than cigarettes. Religion is all about self-effort. But the gospel says that you are helpless. God must do everything for you. The good news is therefore for everyone. Even stinking shepherds with their earthy vocabulary. The third thing that we see here is that God must act if people are going to hear and respond to the good news. The shepherds, they're awake, they're watching, right? But they're totally oblivious to the event that's going on around them. Now, to be fair, there's probably not an announcement board that they're looking at. There's probably not, you know, those posters taped to the lamppost, and they probably don't have the lamppost. And the shepherds probably aren't even in the city to look at any of these things or see them. But God had to act. God had to step in. God had to announce his arrival. God must reveal himself to people. If he doesn't act, then no one hears the good news. The fourth thing that we see from these shepherds is that this event must be declared. And I can't say that strongly enough. It's not a, a have to, right? This isn't a law, oh, you got to go out and do this. No, it's the, it's the nature of the gospel. It is, it is good news. Good news must be proclaimed just by its very nature. Notice the response of the angels to the good news in verse 10, right? They see this. The angels have been waiting for all of human history. And for nine months, the creator of the world has lived and breathed and grown inside a little womb. And they have waited for this day. And it has finally arrived. And what happens in verse 10? And the angel, so this has happened and the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Now, I'll, I'll get into this a little bit later, but here you've got this angel. He is probably, his eyes are probably flaming red, fiery. His, you know, we have examples or illustrations in the Bible of what angels look like. They have, they're described with, as beings that have bronze bodies and bronze legs. And when they, when they speak, it sounds like an ocean talking and so you've got these angel or these shepherds looking up at this glorious being and this being is saying uh, don't be afraid of me it's okay I'm bringing you good news of great joy and this guy is terrifying and yet the, the, the nature of the message requires that this angel say something that he tells somebody 
And it's not just the angels. The shepherds have the same response. They go in. They see the truth of what the angels have said. And what do they do? They immediately start telling people. And then, when they're finished telling everybody that they can, they go back to their sheep. And what are they doing? They're glorifying and praising God. They're telling God out in the middle of the field. They're doing the same thing. That's the nature of this message. It must be proclaimed. And if you look back over all of human history up to this point, the building of the pyramids, the building of Stonehenge, the Peloponnesian War, uh, Alexander the Great's conquest of, of Persia, the rise of the Roman Empire, all of these pale in significance to the birth of Jesus Christ. In this event, God, the creator of the universe, has invaded right? This is, his, this is his, his step onto the shores of humanity. He has invaded human experience. The creator has become a creature. This is not a legend, right? This isn't the Greek gods and, you know, they're all the actors in the, on the Greek stage. It's not a myth, it's not Hercu about Hercules, some imaginary character that, that we've come up with to try and explain something. Th this, is, this is God. It, it's it's D-Day. God is stepping onto the soil of human experience, of human existence. And he does it by sending a soft, cuddly, moist, pink baby. That's what's invaded earth. That's, what's, that, that's what God sent to save humanity. It is the most upside down, backwards kind of invasion that you could ever plan. This message outshines and outweighs every other human event in history. It must be told. Are you telling it? So who are you, right? We've seen a couple of people. Are you the strong man or the strong woman who can pull themselves up by their bootstraps? Or are you the good religious person? And I, I put those two things in the same category, although people might think of them as very different people. But they're good religious, good and religious people are trying to do the same things, right? They, they don't they don't want to say anything unkind or offensive. They want to be tolerant. They, they do their best to make people feel welcome. Are, are you that kind of person? Or are you like the shepherds? Are you the least? Are you the outsider? Are you the weak? Are you the broken? The good news is for all kinds of people. But you must become the least, the broken, the outsider, the weak and the poor in order for the good news to become good news for you. You've got to become like these shepherds. Otherwise, the good news isn't good news. So we've seen that the good news is for all kinds of people, but we haven't really dug into the question, why? Why does God need to break into human history? Why does he send his son to earth in human likeness? Was it necessary? And Luke answers this question in verse 11, right? In verse 11, he says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Part of the good news is that Jesus came into the world to be the Savior of men. And this implies something. It implies that men need a savior, that men need saving. It implies that there is some kind of hostile enemy that we need saving from. And we can see what they need saving from in this text. So in, in the text, when the angel of the Lord appears to the shepherds, verse 9 tells us that the shepherds feared a great fear. That's just what it's, how it reads in the original. It just means they were absolutely terrified. There was fear and they were afraid of the fear. It was, it was really 
they, they were overwhelmed. And someone might argue that perhaps they were right to be afraid, right? They're, they're, they're seeing this awesome creature who is, you know, huge and fiery and burning. And, you know, they think they could probably, he could squash them just by, you know, looking at him or burn holes in him with his laser eyes. But I don't, I don't think that they were right to be afraid. The Bible tells us that there are two kinds of fear. There's the, a godly kind of fear that the Bible calls the fear of God, right? And that's a good thing. And there's the other kind of fear, which is fear of anything else, right? It just, everything else gets lumped into that. And that second kind is what we're witnessing in these shepherds and its sin. Now, now I'm not saying that the shepherds didn't have reason to be afraid. Yeah, I'm, but I, what I'm saying is that the fear is sin. Fear appears in the biblical record very early, right back in Genesis chapter 3. We see it in, in, cha in chapter 3 verse 10 when Adam hears God in the garden and he's afraid because he was naked. And if you want, you can turn all the way back or you can just write this text down, but I'm going to read from Genesis 3, verse 8. And they, that's Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? So it might sound like the problem is the nakedness, that Adam is naked. But the, the real problem is that Adam knows that he's naked. And this knowledge brings both shame, and fear. Neither of those things existed in the garden before Adam and Eve's disobedience. But after their disobedience, fear and shame drive a wedge between Adam and Eve and God and ultimately drive Adam and Eve out of the garden. Prior to their disobedience, Adam and Eve walked with and communed with and talked with God. God is asking Adam where he is because he would go into the garden and, and, he, would, and he would see. Adam and Eve would come to him. They looked forward to being with him. They delighted in God and God delighted in them. There was no fear. There was no shame. Nothing, nothing was different externally. But something had changed internally. That day, Adam and Eve became enslaved to sin. And through their sin, you and I too are enslaved. And so, like at this point, we can talk about any sin. Anger, fear, coveting, pride. All of these come from and find their root in Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. And this is the predicament that we find ourselves in when Jesus appears on the scene. Jesus has come to save us from this. We need to be delivered from dominion, from the dominion of sin in our lives. Back in Genesis 1, God said, I want to make you I want you to exercise dominion over all of creation. And now in chapter 3, sin is exercising dominion over Adam and Eve and us through them. Now, Romans 1 tells us that every human being knows that there is a God. They also know that they have sinned and that they deserve God's righteous anger. And maybe you don't want, you don't like, you wouldn't put it in those terms exactly. Maybe you would rather say something like this. I, I know that there are bad people. 
I know that there's dishonest people. I know that there's mean people. I know that there's people who've done evil things and those people deserve to be punished. But when you say those things, you condemn yourself because you do the very same things. You are greedy. I am greedy. You are, you tell lies. You, you covet. You, we're all guilty and we should be afraid of a holy, righteous God. Just like Adam and Eve were. Matthew chapter 10 tells us that we're not to fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, we ought to fear him who after killing the body can deliver your soul to hell. Maybe that doesn't sound like good news to you, but let me tell you that is the best and the greatest news that you can hear. And most importantly, it is the good news that you and I need to hear. We need to hear that because people don't like bad news at least bad news that is about them. But the truth is that you need to be afraid of God because you've sinned against him and that puts you at odds with God. That's why you need to hear it. It's good for you to hear it because in order for you to get out of and me to get out of the awful predicament that we are in, we must first realize that we are in an awful predicament. So if a drunk man like you know, a very drunk man falls into a well and can't get out, if he doesn't know that he's in the well, if he's so drunk that he doesn't know that he's in the well, then, then he is, he's in a bad state. He doesn't even know that he needs help. And, and that's our predicament. We need to hear this in order to, to help us understand in order to give us eyes to see the predicament that we're in because we can't get out of the predicament that we're in until we know that we're in the predicament. They were afraid, these shepherds, but they really should have been much more afraid than they were. They should have been afraid for their own souls. But the angel brought good news. A savior had been born who would set them free from bondage to sin. And that's exactly what Jesus did. So in the course of his life, Jesus went about teaching and preaching and doing good deeds and healing and living a life that pleased God, his father. And, and then the very people that he came to rescue, they killed him. And while he hung on that cross, God poured all of his wrath on his son. Why did God do that? Was, was God angry with Jesus? No. No, Jesus was, was perfect. He was sinless. Uh, the, the scriptures, Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way that we were, and yet he was without sin. He, 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 he totally pleased his father. When Jesus was being baptized, God says, this is my beloved son. He speaks, people listen, and he says, with him, I am well pleased. Why did God pour his wrath out on his son? Was he angry? No. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that at the cross, Jesus became sin for us. Jesus stepped into our place. We deserve to be on that cross. We deserved to receive all of God's punishment for our sin. And Jesus steps into our place. And the very thing that we ought to be afraid of, that God hates our sin, Jesus has saved us from. He has saved us from God's wrath. That is good news. And if you put your trust in Jesus and you are able to look at Jesus and say, he died for me to save me from wrath and deliver me from slavery to sin. And now I want to live for him. If you can say that, 
then your response is going to be the same as that of the shepherds when they saw that little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Joy. That will be your response. That's the only response to the good news if you accept it. Joy kills fear. Joy drowns fear in the ocean of God's love. Fear, fear of God's wrath, fear of man, fear of death and hell are all like pieces of seaweed or driftwood or shells on the, that get sucked back out into the ocean by the tidal wave of God's love. They don't even begin to compare with God's love for us. You may think that your greatest problem is not having enough money to pay bills or the friends that your kids are hanging out with or not having a job or not being cool in school. That rhymes, just that was a... But this true story about a baby born in Bethlehem puts everything into perspective. You, you need a savior just like the shepherds did. And the question is, having met him this morning, will you go away rejoicing over the salvation that God offers to you? So we've seen the reason for the gospel, that the world is broken and needs a savior, but what about the effect of the gospel? We've looked at that. We've touched on the effects of the gospel. But I want to kind of, I want to dig a little deeper. I want to look at the effects that the gospel produces. Why do the shepherds go away rejoicing and praising God? I mean, on the surface, it seems pretty obvious at one level. They saw an angel of the Lord. Yes, they were afraid, but this is an angel. Now, shepherds are are probably not experts in angelology, but there's probably something different about this one angel than all of the other angels. Uh, clearly, he was an amazing being. They, they see this whole host, like there's a, there's a, this is, this is an army of angels that they're seeing. We don't know whether it's a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, we, we have no idea. They see a host, an army of angels. I, I mean, that's impressive. And, the, you know, the story, the angel of the Lord told them, the prophecy about the child that comes, that, that was going to come, that, that, that actually happens as well. So they, they see there's this prophecy and then they go and they see, yeah, this, what this angel told me is true. But, you know, just think about how you might respond to something like that. I, I think I'd be amazed. I think uh, I'd talk about it. I think I'd want to tell people about these amazing events. But we might also discover that not everybody else is quite as amazed as I am. Right? Why? Well, maybe because they haven't actually witnessed these events. But let's just, let's just focus on the amazement part for a second. Is, is amazement the best description of what's happened to the shepherds? Is their amazement uh, what really motivates them to tell the world about what happened there in Bethlehem? I, I mean, clearly, the shepherds are amazed. This is, you know, it, it's not every day that uh, shepherds in Israel... Uh, see angels, you know, it's, they, they don't come out to their barbecues, they don't show up at, you know, birthday parties. Uh, their angels don't appear any more often to people in ancient times than they do to us today. But what happens to the shepherds is not less than an amazing experience that changed them forever, but it is much more. Notice the shepherd's response in verse 15 to what they heard. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said, let us go 
said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And it might be that they're, you know, they're talking to one another and they're asking, you know, did you see what I saw? I, uh, was this just my hallucination or did we all have this? Maybe it was some, some mushrooms that we ate, you know, this afternoon. Uh, but they all have the same story. They all experience this event together. And so they head to Bethlehem and find out everything that the angels said to them was true. There's a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And that must mean that the whole event is true. Right? And what do they do? They start telling people. They probably tell them about the prophecy and how it turned out to actually be true. And they, they must, I'm, I'm sure they tell people about the child and what the angel of the Lord said about the child. And think about it. If everything that the angel said about the events and locations surrounding the birth of this baby were true, then everything else that the angel said about the baby must be true as well. The first proves the second. This is how prophecy works in the Bible. You give a smaller prophecy and that prophecy is fulfilled. And then when other prophecies are made, you know that those are going to happen because you've already seen God answer these prophetic events or these prophecies. And so the, the things that the angel says about this baby, that it is a savior, that he is Christ the Lord, these things are also true. And this is exactly what's going on when the angel of the Lord tells the shepherds that, that the child being born in this place at this certain time in a specific matter, that's what it does. It proves that the other things that the angel said are true. And that God's chosen king, the one that all of the Old Testament's promised would come, all the prophets that all those prophecies were made about, that, that he's arrived. And this is the real reason the shepherds go away rejoicing and praising God. Sure, the, the events are amazing and incredible and probably will change them forever, but it's what all of these events point to. That's the reason why they praise and worship God. They have encountered the king who's come to deliver his people from bondage and the effect of that is joy. Do you remember the shepherd's response when they first saw those angels? They were terrified. And the angel tells them not to be afraid. And that's like telling somebody, you know, that sees a T-Rex coming barreling after you, telling you not to worry. No, I'm not going to believe you. That thing's going to eat me. That's going to be my response. I remember a day when I was about five. I was walking into a calf barn. We, I grew up on a dairy farm. And my dad had locked a one of our bulls up in a stanchion. A stanchion's just like a, a head gate that holds the animals in. They can't get out. They can't go back and forward. They're locked up and it's safe. And anyways, this bull is in, the, in this stanchion and I'm, I go walking by the bull because I'm going down to the little calves to see the little calves. I'm about five at this point. But as I'm walking back, I turn this corner and I come face to face with this huge bull. I mean, his neck was as big as a tractor tire. He was massive, not probably, for, for a five-year-old, he sure seemed like that. And his head, I mean, it, his bull, like dairy bull's heads are big, like those big bison heads. And I think he was breathing fire. And, you know, I, I, was, I was terrified. I was absolutely petrified and I, I, I must have started crying. My dad heard me and tried to assure me that everything was okay. But I tell you, I was not moving till he came and got me. There was no way I was going by that bull. There was nothing that he could do to undo the grip that fear had on me. Nothing he could say. No amount of reassurances. I was gripped by fear. 
Now, previously we saw that fear is sin. Fear is something that we must be repent, that we must repent of. And what I want to draw your attention to now is the effect. So sin, fear is sin, but fear also has an effect on us. Fear paralyzes, fear dominates, fear utterly consumes and controls. These shepherds are staring at an angel and they are terrified. These are not fluffy, harp-toting, dolly-like people, right? They're bronze, blazing bronze beings with burning eyes. The Bible gives us descriptions of angels that just show us that they are scary people, scary beings, beings that we, you know, we would just be in awe of if we, was, we were to stand in the presence of it. And, and these scary creatures, this huge, fear, fearsome, scary creature, mighty creature, is telling these shepherds who are terrified not to be terrified. And what's the reason? The reason's in verse 10. The angel says to them, fear not. I, I'm this, th- this angel must have been totally oblivious right? He's, he is probably just about jumping out of his skin with joy and he is telling the, these shepherds not to be afraid and, and he is the most scary thing that the, those shepherds could imagine. And, uh, and the reason that he gives them is in verse 10, Don't be afraid, for I bring you good news of great joy. The reason you don't have to be afraid, shepherds, is because I am bringing you a message that is so full of joy that it will drown out your fear. Do you believe that? Do you believe that's possible? Let me show you how this is true. Did you ever hear or tell ghost stories as a child? What dispels fear faster than, a, than butter on a hot corn cob than laughter? I mean, you tell a joke and all of a sudden all the, all the frightening things are gone and everybody's busting a gut and, and, and all that fear disappears in the face of laughter. Now, Maybe you're, maybe you're saying, well, well laughter is not really joy, you know, so well, let, me, let me suggest something else. What's the best medicine for, you know, uh, suffering, the death of a, a loved one, right? We, we all know that, that new life, a child being born, a marriage changes everything. It lightens everything. It lifts things. We know that. It, it doesn't, I'm not saying that it removes those, those sad feelings. It, it doesn't, they don't disappear, but they, they do overshadow. Joy dwarfs, consumes, absorbs fear. The Bible says this is true as well. At the end of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, the chapter is about the resurrection. And at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is basically spitting in the face of death as he writes, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put off, put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. De- death's a scary thing. We, we spend a lot of time, like even, even believers, 
who, who believe that they will be raised from the dead fear death. And Paul here is saying that death, your, day, your days are numbered. You've already been defeated. And there's going to be a day when, when you will be swallowed up in victory. The sting of death. What's the point? Joy eclipses fear, right? Jesus' resurrection on the cross consumes, swallows death. This good news is so good that it drowns our fear. It swallows it for lunch. It's not that the fear disappears, but it's drowned out by the flood of joy. The point is that joy is way more powerful than fear. And these shepherds have encountered and experienced a, a joy that leaves them transformed. The result of encountering the good news, that is meeting a baby who has come to save the world from their sins. The result of that encounter is to be transformed forever and to experience the beginning, the first fruits of a life filled, full of joy. There are some here who are so gripped by fear that you can't even believe what I'm saying is true. You can't even believe that it's possible to obey Jesus' commands to his disciples not to be anxious about anything or, to his, or his command not to fear those who can kill your body but cannot kill your soul. But I am here telling you and I hope the text has shown you this morning that it is possible that you can be set free from slavery to fear. Fear is slavery. But the only way that that can happen is to come face to face with a baby in a manger to taste and see and truly experience God's grace to you in the greatest of Christmas gifts. Look to the Savior this morning. Look to him. Behold your king and be transformed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you uh, for your word. God, we are no different than the world. We have the same weaknesses, the same struggles, the same sins, the same fears. But there is a difference. We have a savior whom we have looked to whom we have put our trust in, a savior who rescues us, who delivers us, and who has set us free from the power of sin. Father, I wanna pray for myself and my brothers and sisters that we would go from here having seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and being set free to speak not just with boldness, but with joy to be overwhelmed and overcome with the goodness of the good news to us. God, we are, we are weak. We need you to act. Father, help us step in. Send your spirit. Fill us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.